Faith in a Fresh Vibe podcast. Welcome, friends, to the end of season six, a season on deconstruction. If you've ventured through all the different episodes from three episodes with Drew Brown, the founder, creator of the Exvangelical hashtag Blake Chastain, Omar Reyes, my co-conspirator, and our current iterations of what church community looks like right now. David Hayward, perhaps the creator of the hashtag Deconstruction, maybe, he won't claim that. And now, this final episode, featuring my friend Michiko. Michiko is a minister who grew up in the United Church of Canada, not only that, they are a minister with the United Church of Canada. It's always valuable for us to capture perspectives, voices, and ideas from across the landscape of different traditions as we pursue the notions of what it means to reclaim, what it means to discard, what it means to challenge all the different pieces of a Christian formation. Grasping different stories is crucial to that journey. This is a one-hour episode. I decided not to split it in half, that you would be able to pull out the fullness of these ideas, these hopeful opportunities and pictures of things to come. Thanks for venturing in deconstruction. This won't be the end, but it is the end of season six. What comes next? Well, connect in. Find me, find all the different guests on social media, connect into our work. And for this podcast, you can look me up at rohati.com and figure out ways you can support the work that's happening here of opening up the possibilities of a faith beyond our normal imagination. Hope is out there. Reclamation is out there. So let's go and find it. Michiko, I'm so excited to have your voice on the podcast. You are going to wrap up season deconstruction. And so, no pressure. I was going to say, thank you. I didn't realize I had such an esteemed, you know, position here on the podcast today. It's, um, I guess, last is esteemed. Last shall be first. (laughs) See what I did there? Sneaky. Uh, The first question... I ask guests is to say and share who are you and what lands are you currently on? So who are you is like a wonderfully big, huge question. So 
thanks for starting off with that. <laughs> uh, then share with us a wonderfully big narrative. And I'll, you trust my editing skills. I probably wouldn't edit it anyway. So No, no. Okay, we'll keep it simple. I'm Michiko. I use they and them pronouns, and I am an ordained minister in the United Church of Canada. I am joining you um, just a bit from the Grand River, um, land that is colonially known as Cambridge, Ontario, but it's the land of the Haudenosaunee, Anishinaabe, and Adirondack people. And I like to mention also being connected to uh, the Grand because um, the Haldeman Tract Treaty was drawn up to um, talk about land that's six miles on either side of the river. Um, and so my relation to the land, you know, are also up and down river uh, when I think about right relations and Indigenous justice and being a guest and a trespasser as a settler on this land. Um, what else should I say about me? Um, I am just doing my best to make my way, my socially distanced way <laughs> through mm -hmm. this pandemic, mostly working from home and in congregational ministry. How long have you been a minister? Now, would you say that uh, you are vocationally uh, a minister, that that's your, that's your one job, or you have many vocations, bivocational or, or many vocations? Yeah, it's been an interesting uh, journey for me because I had no plans of going into ministry when I was studying political science in my undergrad. Mm -hmm. And then um, God, sense of humor, you know how it goes. Was, um, sort of two weeks before the semester started, I just found myself applying for seminary. And um, that led to um, this wonderful experience I had of studying part-time, living in Toronto for the past almost a decade, and um, mm. doing all sorts of ministry um, while studying. And, and so I've officially been ordained um, a year and a bit now but i really feel like i've just been doing some form of ministry or another for about 10 years now off air we were chatting about your religious experience i guess we could say or your church experience your church background and there's so, so many different church languages to use there but you are close to perhaps born and bred in the united church of canada yeah i would go one step I think we can go a step further because oh. both my parents are United Church ministers. Okay. Um, yeah. So I, in the blood. Okay. I've been attending church, like, you know, sort of in utero and was raised in the church. But I mean, I also then carry the baggage of being like a double preacher's kid, um, yeah. which is its own unique experience in terms of faith formation. Do you think that, obviously, you can't escape your formation, but now as a minister that you are drawing on the stories of your parents and, and those that have gone before you? Yeah, well, I mean, I think it's funny because by the time I was like 12, I thought that the church was horrible. I found out about the Crusades and I was like, mm -hmm. I didn't learn about this in Sunday school. And I was very yeah, annoyed and I was yeah. very disappointed in the church. And then I was like, definitely not straight. And the church, you know, was talking about gay marriage and how they felt. And I heard homophobic stuff at church and I just had no patience for it. 
I am, I'm very grateful for whatever ounce of like anger I let myself feel <laughs> that made me mm. like, yeah, have that contempt for the church in that way. So I wasn't involved as a teenager. I found many convenient excuses to avoid church. Um, but it was sort of like being able to go away to university, have space away from my family and, um, learn more about social justice stuff um that i was sort of able to start thinking about developing my own sense of faith or spirituality um and so i i do think that there were moments where i was able to reconcile or understand a bit better why my parents were ministers and that they mm. themselves knew about the crusades and that they were passionate about social justice and it wasn't that they yeah. had just you know not thought about these things when choosing their careers so um yeah it's helped to be able to then grow as adults understanding each other a bit better in that way why didn't you leave you had the space um during your university years what compelled you to come back and in fact go to seminary you already mentioned that it was calling partially calling the United Church has participated in things that are our own version of the Crusades in some ways. Yeah. That can build a lot of cynicism. Yeah. Um, I think it was relationship. Um, I mm. got, um, there were opportunities for me to participate in a lot of youth programming and events where I got to do leader things and talk about the things I was passionate about and get to know people. And I think that made a real difference. And um, I think the other thing is, um, jokes on me, I thought I was studying politics and turns out I had ended up at a school with a specialized program um, that had a background, um, like it was a Catholic university and it just happened to have a lot of like um, Catholic professors who were from that Catholic social teaching background. Um, and so, you know, um, I got a credit for traveling to El Salvador one summer. And obviously you just can't learn and study about the history of this place without learning about liberation theology. Mm -hmm. And, and so in mm -hmm. some ways, um, ironically, when I was trying to get this secular <laughs> education about, um, politics and justice, it just, um, became more and more apparent to me that it actually was a really spiritual thing and that, you know, sure, there's lots of ways that we can approach some of the biggest problems in our world right now with science and facts and all the other things. But, you know, like, like when we talk about, say, the climate crisis, like the issue is greed. It's not actually resources. And for me, then it was like, oh, that's a spiritual matter. So mm. it just it kept drawing me back that. Um, and also just seeing the ways that so many activist communities were really just struggling with how to be in community and how to care for one another. And um, that's something that, you know, church has some experience with. So I think it was also sort of trying to figure out how to bring these different experiences together. Talk to us more about, about that. That's a fascinating observation in terms of of community building in activism so often you find your people in those spaces 
yet you saw a connection point of how, and we're using it broadly, how the church could offer some experience, perhaps even expertise in, in that space. Is it beyond just the spiritual aspects of what it means to be human? Is it including aspects of broadly community development? What did you see there that drew you into, hey, the church actually has something to contribute here? I mean, I think part of it was just being given um, an opportunity to learn about different social movements where, you know, if you trace the thread, the church does show up one way or another, mm. right? Mm-hmm. Um, but you think about the civil rights movement in the States, right? Like, of course, that yeah. is the church in so many ways, you know? And then so when you learn about these things, um, the work of liberation theology in Latin America throughout the 80s, like what that was, what it meant, um, you know, um, looking at the role that religion played during like truth and reconciliation work that happened after apartheid in South Africa, right? Like there's just so much um, going on there. And I think for me, I also noticed too, that if you're not intentional about understanding your spiritual practices and traditions, um, you're much more likely to start appropriating or um, engaging in the spirituality, you know, that can actually be causing harm to yourself or others. You listed off some critical examples, liberation theology for many, uh, for many in South America, um, the institutional black church and civil rights movement and apartheid South Africa. When we think of Canada, not to say that there aren't exceptions to the rule, but I think it's easy to develop, at least from my perspective, as someone who never grew up uh, connected to mainline traditions, to think of the churches as dropping the ball or um, lacking distinct competency when it comes to engaging properly, um, engaging, not even leading matters of justice. What does it look like from your point of view from within a, a mainline tradition? Yeah, I mean, there's sort of different pieces of my story that connect to the United Church around justice. Um, I remember being told growing up that the United Church was um, an institution that advocated um, and did not forget Japanese Canadians while they were interned during World mm-hmm. War II, um, that there had been United Church ministers that were very important in terms of feeling cared for Um and so that those relationships have been really meaningful and really made a difference so that, you know, after internment, um, many Japanese Canadians, you know, they weren't allowed to go back or there was nothing to go back to. And so they ended up in Ontario and in Toronto. And so there was like a Japanese United Church. And so this congregation of people who just went through internment, you know, all gathering each Sunday which I think is really beautiful. Um, and then also as a queer person to know that I'm part of a denomination where, you know, even at a time where like a lot of society was not having conversations um, that were affirming or supportive LGBTQ plus people um, for the denomination in 1988 to say, you know, your sexual orientation shouldn't be a barrier for full membership. So including leadership in the church. Um, yeah, there's been times where they've been able to 
and be ahead of the curve to like provide that sort of influence in that way. Um, I want to circle back to that because I also think that that is one of its criticisms. Um, but I, I want to linger around the story because, and I really value this in, in your storytelling in terms of drawing in the connection points that are relational for you and that this makes sense because of the relational connections that I have seen or I know of the relationship throughout this uh, denomination that speaks profoundly to activities or it's, in effect, the embodied reality of justice. Um, I want to go back to the story of how the United Church served, at least in a congregation in Toronto, perhaps beyond, um, interned Japanese Canadians. Uh, is that a story? Is that a story that touches my family? Is that a story that touches yours? It was my um, great-grandparents that were in internment camps during the war. And that generation, both my grandparents were like one of seven or eight children. And so, um, yeah, that's like my family's experience of that. And um, we were talking earlier about lineages. And the other piece, too, is that um, I have a great uncle who was a United Church minister. And he served um, a couple of, of these Japanese United Church congregations. There's one in Montreal as well, as in Toronto. All of my family would have come back to Alberta out of BC, not come back to land in Alberta. So they never went further east than Manitoba. So just capturing more of where our people landed. And my, so my great grandparents and my grandpa were interned. And then shipped to, they managed to stay together as a, as a family, but they lost all their property mm-hmm. in Steveston and were shipped to interior Manitoba to work on a sugar beet farm. And most of them then landed in southern Alberta and great-grandma would have spent almost her whole life in Lethbridge. It was a big Japanese community in Lethbridge and then grandpa and most of the family the siblings landed in Calgary but some went back to BC some went to Toronto so anyways that's um that's the connection so maybe you're in your family tradition there's a bit more of the sushi made out of spam I don't know if you've had this I guess I've heard about this being like a very Japanese Canadian thing right it's it's class it's culture coming together but my family didn't (laughs) make or eat that growing up but which spam yeah like making sushi out of spam yeah not just sushi yeah so that was never a thing with your uh, grandparents no no it's interesting because a lot of actually like (laughs) my understandings of like class and poverty are more connected to the newfie side of my family and how my mom was raised. So yeah, yeah, At, like class as in poor, like being raised poor. Mm-hmm. I I never connected the spam part of, as class. Um, is it a poor thing? Oh, it's, it's not the finest cut of meat. Oh no, now I have to go, have to ask. I can't. 
my grandfather passed away a, you know a couple months ago so I can't mm. ask him about that but but my uncle is like loves spam and su- mm, spam like in su- and and they would have just grown up in that so I don't know why hmm, I have to okay so I'm, I'm creating a <laughs> homework for you you can actually my the Murakami house in in Steveston is a, is a national historic site now in the shipyard they were filming an NFB film about her life and shut it down early because if you want to watch it, I won't ruin it. Um, because they found a huge secret that she had been holding for 80 years. And so they pivoted this documentary about her life to talk about this secret that she had. So anyways, you can watch it online. It's called Obachan's Garden. Okay. Um, I'm, I'm very Kuala. intrigued and surprised I haven't heard about it. It's it's a little bit old now, but you can watch it. Yeah, it's streaming. It should still be streaming. Um, okay, that was, we got sidetracked, but in a good way. Yeah, well, I think maybe it, the our conversations we're having about Japanese internment link to the ways in which we do the work of saying deconstructing whiteness in our lives. Um, and how that relates to intergenerational trauma, like silence around what has happened, and especially Japanese cultural norms around like, you know, don't make a big deal about it, just blend in, blend in, you'll be okay. And um, how that can be really hard to be trying to balance, you know, Mm. especially when you don't realize like, you know, culture is just the water you swim in. And so yeah, to have to do the work of really like talking to other Japanese Canadians, like outside your family to get different stories, different experiences to sort of say like, oh, this seems to be a theme for us or, oh, that was a particular, maybe more about a personality of a family member, but being able to do that work um, and and how hard it can be when, um, you know, the Japanese Canadian diaspora is just so spread out you know mm, <laughs> there's mm. you know like there's not the same sort of chinatown or little italy or whatever neighborhoods have in the same way one of the ways i've heard someone describe that japanese experience um a block from my house here just like it is so so random because it's so so rare especially in calgary there's a japanese bakery and yeah. Yeah, exactly. And so every time I pop in, you know, we have a chat. But um, one time after we were having a chat, they're like, yeah, you know, mom and dad, they work in the bakery. They always have all they do is work. They're like turtles. They just go into their shell, work, poke their head out, kind of look around. But that's it. And they just stick to themselves and work and work. And like, oh, my gosh, like this is it, it's almost a um, trope in a, in a way. Uh, and and I don't know how healthy it is when I think of some my great aunt being connected into community, Japanese community across the street from her is one of the community centers and how different she is from my grandfather mm. when he was alive, not really participating in, in those pieces and to see where they go and and what a relief it could be to even just talk about your traumas if they did. Um it speaks to a book I read by recently by Hillary McBride that um, includes a term of 
of epigenetic change and how memories of trauma affect us on a genetic level. Mm-hmm. Talking about what we, what you and I carry in our bodies and how that impacts our identities today, rooted in the trauma of the past of white supremacy and whiteness in, in this case. It's just like, oh my gosh, there's so much to process here to kick out unto liberation. Let's stick with um, this conversation around um, the press against uh, white supremacy and whiteness. This is a season on deconstruction. I would love to talk about deconstruction in two ways. One, through a, a, kind of the the personal journey that one might go through and how that may look like and your own story, but also uh, systemically and systematically across institutions of what deconstructing the institution or perhaps uh, deconstructing faith at large may look like. Um, we could talk about that forever, but uh, let's try to hit it up by connecting it to notions of, of white rage and whiteness and white supremacy that are happening now in, in the contemporary space in Canada. These are not new things, mm-hmm. but as we see a growing voice of, of they call it the truckers convoy, uh, growing voice to repeal health measures, public health measures. There is, I think, not only... Uh, a growing wave of white rage and despair, but one that is pulling in um, more folks, white folks, and and not just white folks who are tired in this pandemic. All of this, I think, has roots and certainly connection points into identity. How well we deal with the pandemic, how well we deal with public health policies are rooted in identity formation largely around individualism, I think, and that notion. So when it comes to identity, do you think that that is the right observation or pertinent observation, that identity formation has a lot to do with how you're responding in the midst of these unfolding both white rage, truckers' convoys, and also a response to the tiredness of pandemic life? Yeah, I'm always curious about the ways in which... um power and privilege um, connect to behavior that looks like entitlement, um, Mm. expectations that things will go a certain way, um, an unwillingness to experience emotional distress or discomfort, um, Mm. and how that has to relate to, you know, being nurtured to sort of expect that things will always go your way. And I think Mm. that in a lot of ways, the pandemic creates a, a real challenge for everyone and not everyone is used to the idea that there are just things about life that mm. um, suck <laughs> and that you have to figure out how to do the greatest good within the sort of uh. confines of what agency you do have. And, you know, for me, a queer person of color, I've navigated that sense of loss of agency and the desire to feel power with others, solidarity or power within you know, on a spiritual sense. And so I'm navigating those things all the time in many relationships that I have to mm, people mm-hmm, or institutions. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think that mm-hmm. there were some times where I felt very overwhelmed, very disempowered, really struggled with those things and really worked in community 
in therapy in so many ways to figure out how I wanted to live that life, um, you know, um, what that authenticity um, felt like for me. But for many people who aren't connected to, you know, social justice networks that really teach these values and support people in these ways, they're being thrust into that situation of feeling powerlessness, maybe in a way that feels like it's the first time, maybe in ways that are bumping up against narratives that are oppressive, you know, a white man who's expected to be a breadwinner for his family, all of a sudden doesn't have a job. And so, you know, the ways in which patriarchy and white supremacy, you know, do a disservice to all of us, you have Mm -hmm. people that are feeling quite lost in all of this. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, And then dealing with isolation, mental illness, um, stress, the way that chronic stress um, eats away at us. And so um, I understand why the language being used right now of a freedom convoy really speaks to people that feel Mm -hmm. Like you were saying, it's rage and despair and the way that those things are interconnected. Um, that's so key. That was so good. And keep the train rolling. <laughs> keep the truck, the convoy rolling. <laughs> keep the convoy rolling here. Let's talk about language around freedom because that is distinctly, I don't say Christian, that's distinctly language that God has for those who are looking for liberation. God wants you to be ultimately free. Yes. That's yes, a different it's, freedom. It's so powerful. And, you know, like just last week in the lectionary, the thing that I was preaching about, right, is Jesus's first sermon, you know, reading from Isaiah about mm, this, mm. you know, the spirit of the Lord is upon me. I've come to, you know, set loose the captor, um, you know, the captive, um, to have mm-hmm. the oppressed go free. And, um, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. it's such beautiful language. And um, I think it can be hard to understand as Christians reading this today, like where we find ourselves in the text and what it means for us to live in a big, messy world where we are often oppressed and oppressor all the time in so many different ways. Yeah. Just by, yeah, yeah the fact yeah. that life the is what it is. Of that. Um, but I, I think that what frustrates me the most about seeing, you know, people talk about this um, trucker convoy um, is saying that this is about freedom and this desire to be free. Um, but when I think about it as a Christian, I see the ways in which God calls for liberation, but it looks, or freedom, but it looks like a particular thing, you know? Yes. It's slaves, enslaved people being able to, you know, be free. And, and, you know, the story of Exodus, or, you know, it's about prisoners being set free. It's about um, healing uh, community. And, you know, I hold this idea of freedom so much in connection with this idea of being part of the body of Christ. Mm. And what I think I struggle with um, is seeing language of freedom being used when really what they're saying is I want to behave however I want without having to suffer or deal with any consequences for my actions. And for me, that really feels like selfishness disguising itself in language of freedom, which is so different than um, this belief that freedom is about a collective liberation for all of us, you know? Um, 
me being free should not um, mean that somebody else then has to suffer um, or feel some kind of limitation. That's the word. So, um, yeah. So like for me, like Christian freedom is um, about an interconnected and interdependent reality. Um, And so that's, that's um, how, that's, I think what I'm bumping up against when I see language of freedom being thrown around in so many different ways. It's the same way that we talk about justice and then we don't often stop to say, okay, what do you mean by that word? But you said Christianity, was it Christianity or Christian as an interdependent thing? Interconnected, interdependent, you know, the body of Christ, you don't look at the eye doesn't look at the hand and say, I have no need of you, you know, or something, you know, to the foot, you know, it's, it's all needed in its own way. And so anything where you say, you know, when the eyeball says, I got to be free and I don't care what happens to the hand, you know, the whole body suffers. What do we do? What do we do when the eye wants to be free? <laughs> <laughs> what happens when the, the hand wants to be free and is bringing harm to the body? What do we do? Do you want to answer first? I don't have an answer. Yeah. That's your question. <laughs> You try to give that back to me? No. (laughs) I think for me in my ministry, what I have learned Mm. is um, how to pay attention to um, the sadness and fear behind the anger um, and Mm. how to understand that initial reactions, posturing, whatever you see going on with someone, if you're able to just be a little patient about that, and then cut through with like, I'm still going to like, love you while you sort through this. And like, it can be that, that that can make all the difference for these situations that feel so impossible. And a lot of it is about just like, regulating your body, being able to be present to have a good conversation, which is what prayer and communal singing and you know worship you know ideally helps you all feel like you truly are one and are willing to then sit and be present to each other i think one of the things that deconstruction presses us to or or at least brings this option of but also my own processing of how to deal with harm um is one that I'm still working through, repenting of in many ways, because it's so easy to say if the hand is not working, cut it off because it's infected and it will infect the rest of the body. Just cut it off. Get re- get away from this thing that causes you harm. A lot of deconstruction is like that too. Run away from the abuse. And and maybe you, you have to actually do that. Um, but it's easier... And, and I'm not sitting in the tension. No, I am, actually. That's why I'm stuck here. Of, of what does it look like to, to hold this desire to cut away what's hard, the conflict, the rage, and only look at the body that wants to venture towards justice. Maybe there is a time for that posture. Um, but I know that there's something 
broken at least that's not chasing this way of Jesus in that mix of how to have you know how to have an enemy well I think about if we're going to go with a body metaphor like not every part of the body is meant to deal with everything like you know some parts are like pain receptors and are just like their job is to just be like ouch bad right mm. we need to pay attention and then there's like white blood cells and their job is to do the healing and then there's like other parts that it's just like the brain keep everything going at all times and so I think for me it's been important to recognize when and how I am in community and what my role is and what that means and so I have some relationships where I can be the healing presence where it makes sense to me the spirit feels like I feel led by the spirit. It feels fulfilling. It feels meaningful for me to be in relationship with someone where we can have conversations where we learn from each other. And like, that's beautiful. And hopefully reciprocity that the healing is mutual. The learning is mutual um, and things like that, you know, um, not to just assume that there's just like good and bad, right. That we're all having pieces of this, that we're sharing and making sense of together. Um, and that there are also ways in which like it totally makes sense for me to be like that's not safe for me i don't want to do that and it's not my job and there's somebody else who you know is going that's going to make more sense for them and i loved when i realized this in like social justice conversations like someone would come on facebook and they would like start getting mad at me and i would just be like we don't need to fight about this and then I would message one of our mutual friends and say, hey, this person looks like they're struggling. I think this is your conversation to have, hmm. you know, and just learning how to tap out and to like invite in other relationships um, for me has felt really important for how then you navigate that sense of like, we're all in community. Being a minister, I think, has really challenged me around that because moving to Toronto, coming out as queer, trying to be like a queer activist, you learn so much about this sort of like cut and dry, this person caused harm, this person's problematic, don't hang out with that person, mm -hmm. that organizing mm -hmm. group mm -hmm. is not radical enough, you know, all of mm -hmm. this stuff. Um, mm -hmm. But in church, it's like the doors are open every Sunday and anyone who wants to walks in, you know, and there's just a different sense of how then you have to navigate that especially when you're in a position of leadership. Um, and there are times when that creates a lot more challenge than being able to just say, you know, we're going to do our own thing over here. But um, also, I think, creates a lot of opportunity for grace. Not only that, it's grace unto reconciliation of the repair of, of broken relationship. And that's so much harder, and I like the word you used of challenge. That's harder to do, especially as leaders, when that's within the community. Like you, you, you have to figure out a way to venture down the hard road of relational repair. I don't like that. That's, that's so hard. Um, what I find myself in the situation in ministry right now is largely shaping so that we don't have a door to open. Um, and so anyone can't just come in to the community. It, there is a posture formation around um, 
I wonder if sameness is the right word in this case. Around postures of justice, around, let's say, pandemic. So everyone is on the same page. And now it's like a development of figuring out how we respond to our racist uncle or our parents who are anti-vax or this convoy or all those different things. And to do so well, I think that the church has an important voice right now, specifically in the Canadian context uh, around these pieces. But I don't know if it will take a radical posture. No, I'm excited about that idea that church is a space where you do really feel this like groundedness in shared values and like that you can see each other and understand each other. I feel like I've been reflecting a lot this past year on the idea that um, ease should be a part of liberation mm. like mm. pleasure things feeling good things making sense things just feeling right in your like gut yeah how that is part of liberation and that we should honor yes. that and uh you know because i come from this waspy white anglo-saxon protestant tradition where there's so much of this like protestant work ethic where it's like if it's good mm. it's hard you know no pain no gain oh, yeah. and yeah. just such an emphasis on that and so I think there's a sense of like, I need a community where we can just love each other right now. And I, that's what I need. Great. And like, if that's the posture your community wants to hold, then you can do that. And then there's another community that's going to engage in the work of God, be the church in a different way. And I don't think every church has to be everything all the time to everyone, you know? That's such a good word. Yeah. I mean, I echo that in in the liberations like you're always waiting either for god to drop the hammer because things are going so well like where do we get that from it's nuts that that we would be drawn into this understanding that there there's going to be a pain associated with with the liberation versus this notion that god is just setting the wrongs right yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, the conversation I have so often because, you know, I work in a white dominant church. Um, you know, I work in a lot of spaces where it's like upper middle class people. Um, and to, like often I feel like the, the broken record of Michiko's sermons is just like liberation is good for all of us. You know, like all of us benefit when we are in a liberated world, including the oppressor. Like who wants mm. to be an oppressor? There's such a much better thing or way mm -hmm. that you could be. Um, mm. And I think that that's the thing I try to uplift as often as possible is like whatever ways that you are struggling and suffering in these systems right now that dehumanize all of us, like it's change is hard, but it's a change for the better for anyone. Let's look at the waspy, white, Protestant tradition, progressive tradition that you have grown up in, but now serve mm -hmm. as the, um, 
I don't know if terms like deconstruction are, are terms that you would normally hear within a United Church context or culture, but what does it look like for Christians on the margins to exist, and in your case to serve, within that type of institution? Caveat always is, I'm only able to talk for myself. And, you know, I am non-binary, clear, person of color. But in a lot of ways, you know, like English is my first language, university educated. Um, You know, I feel like I have a lot of privilege in a lot of ways that I operate in the United Church of Canada as well. And so Mm -hmm. I don't want to just sort of throw some labels out there as if that then can speak for all. I think for me, the struggle is that there's ways in which the church wants to celebrate the passion for social justice, um, but that can easily become tokenizing. Um, And it can be easy to feel like they want the picture or the sound bite or like the concept of you. They love that there's a queer minister like me, you know, Um, the aesthetic, you know, it's great that I've got this nose ring and I, you know, (laughs) wear black lipstick and, you know, but then at the end of the day, who really like wants to hire me? Who really believes in me when I speak in a meeting? Who's hearing my voice and taking my ideas seriously? So there's a tension between those things, I think. But I also really love that I have the opportunity to work with other people who, you know, have said, like, I just, I just can't be a minister in another denomination. Like, I'm openly clear, this is the church where this really makes sense for me right now. And for us to be able to then support one another in what we feel called to do, I think is great. Do you feel that sense of tension as you walk into your role as minister? Not not merely, I'm not thinking only in your local congregation, but towards the denomination as a whole as well? I mean, it is sort of surreal to try and figure out what it means to navigate power when I might be the only queer person in the room, the only racialized person, the only millennial, mm-hmm. um, mm. the only non-binary person. And oftentimes I'm the only of all of those identities. Mm. And so I might feel marginalized in a lot of ways um but then i'm the minister which is a role with so much institutional power Hmm. and so and i have you experience both of those yeah well what's going on when that do you feel that embodied tension or is that like a glimpse onto liberation i think it depends on the day (laughs) Mm -hmm. and the moment and yeah what's happening um I'm really grateful for the opportunity to be in ministry. I think is where I'm landing today. I think one of the easy criticisms to progressive denominations, and this is coming from somebody on the outside looking in, is that uh, there is really good embodiment for things like um, climate action. And I don't know if anyone is further ahead when it comes to opening the doors for the queer community. But I also think the danger that you alluded to, um, what and what I think for all traditions that are rooted in white hegemony is the inability to deal with the root problem 
or the bedrock problem of white supremacy. It's like, how far are you actually going to go in your chase for liberation of those on the inside, or, or rather those in the center, but also for those on the margins, if you can't contend with the foundational power structure? Um, that's always been my shot across the bow. Is that fair? Yeah, yeah. I mean, United Church of Canada was created through an act of parliament. Um, it was meant to have this like unifying sense of this Christian nation, like the dominion of Canada was to be, you know, so intertwined with the church. And so the ways in which the Canadian, the settler colonial project known as Canada, you mm. know, has operated, it's so interconnected to the church. And those are huge questions to ask, especially when it comes to basic things around resources like land ownership and how mm. you make sense of those things. So I don't think that that means that the church can escape from that. Um, I think for me, when I have conversations within the denomination, I often like to ask a question around what I call like liberal complacency. How much are we happy with thinking that we are good and nice? And mm. is that preventing us from digging deeper or asking bigger questions about real radical shifts, right? Like, great that we can all have special Sundays dedicated to different social justice causes, but uh, who are we hiring? Who, who makes the most money in the church and why and how? Do you think there's hope that a church with those types of roots and with a DNA, um, it's like, I'll ask it like this, can a tiger change its stripes? I believe that through God, all things are possible. But I believe that God came and lived and worked in this world um, and taught us the greatest lesson through death and resurrection. And so I think hmm. that the fullness of what the church may mean may be um, through experiences of loss and death of Christendom, of who we thought we were meant to be, um, and that that's where the real potential lies. And so people often talk about the church dying with fear. And, uh, you know, for me, it's like, this is kind of our tradition. Such a good, I might put that on a sweater. <laughs> that was so good. I mean, um, I always joke that I'm a Holy Saturday minister. I really love the in-between. I'm like, yes, let yeah. us let empire die. Let us let it all die. Yeah. And we will yeah. have to grieve that, but... I feel like that's just like a space where I, I see the resurrection, I think from that space. It's like, how do you as a minister, and, and maybe this is my cynicism, but come out, if we talk about something like liberation um, or dealing with white supremacy, something like that, and, and having the same conversations of a white, I'll use that term, white institution talking about the liberation and working towards justice, but these things are not coming to pass. How do you how do you balance that tension of like this? Maybe it's not tension; it's reality that this will never happen here, and a new thing needs to happen. Like, how, how do you not give up? or have despair that the thing is broke 
or or perhaps he already answered that in the and I hold with an open hand the thing will die <laughs> well I mean I just think about like all the disciples that follow Jesus and I mean depending on how close you're following which gospel there is a sense that they know that Jesus is going to die right and their choices of what makes this still all worthwhile is not whether or not Jesus will live forever it's just the willingness to be dedicated to what feels true but that I think that this is like for me, the question I would ask back to you is how much do you think that we've made the institutional church a false idol? And how much are we conflating the idea of God's redemptive work in the world with what, you know, institutional churches are? I don't need them. I've never operated in I've been formed within them. I'm an expert in them, but I've never had vocational. I've never been a vocational minister within institutional Christianity, Mm -hmm. but I still see the power of the church in this liminal space of being the preview of the now of, of kingdom. Now I believe in those things, but I mean, in many ways, my ministry and, and, and those who, are venturing alongside in different places across the land are evidence that there is a different way uh, to do these things. It looks completely different. I, I'm not one to throw away the institution, but I have, I have no ties to it, so it can die. It doesn't matter to me, right? I, I mean, I hope it doesn't. It has so many resources to do good things, and it does way more things than I do. Right. So I'm not I'm not actually one to throw away institutions, but I'll press it and say, you don't contend with your white supremacy and, and to balance sort of that prophetic voice with a reality of 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 balancing the goodness that is also happening in, in, in the midst as well. Right. Um, but no, I have no I don't have any benefit from the institution. So it doesn't matter to me like I'm way outside of it I don't know, it's, it's such a weird outsider place to be that it probably made me the monster I am today <laughs> I mean I think also like as we're talking about this ideas of like institutions and white supremacy I think it's interesting to look at the fact that like this is a question to be asked pretty much in every space where mm. we could be mm-hmm. in right now like mm-hmm. I'm passionate I'm a minister the church is where I'm asking these questions but there are so many NGOs that are oh, yeah. also dealing with these issues of like yeah. white boards, white supremacy running rampant through organizations designed to do good. You know, there's so many ways of like mm-hmm. schools, hospitals, like medical fields, like right, like there's just like the mental yes. health field, social work, all, all asking these exact Every institution. same questions. So yes. Um, um, I mean, where where were you going with that? Yeah, yeah, carry on. No, I don't think I was going anywhere hopeful with it. But I think maybe just to <laughs> realize that whatever conversations we're having, that we're not having them alone, um, that there are people learning and doing good in all sorts of spaces. And I think that's for me, like when people are like, the church is like such a messed up institution. How could you be a minister? And it's like, I don't know if there's any institution you know, like what career path have I chosen to be a lawyer 
um, like I thought of, or a journalist, like another time, or a therapist. You know, these are all of these career paths I imagine at certain points. I would also be having, I think, these conversations. Yeah, we can't escape the cultural formation of whiteness. At some point, you have to sign or click the box and accept the terms and conditions. But at the same time, you resist as well. And I want to end our conversation around what resistance looks like or what the new thing might look like. Because I think, and, and you know, my take on this, although there's goodness in institutional, uh, we'll use churches, institutional churches, that they fundamentally can't shift away from their DNA, that institutions are designed to keep things the same. They're not designed for change. They're designed to hold in a mass and, and protect power and the power holders. And when that foundation is white supremacy, then it's going to protect the, that power. Which means that if we want to do new things, like you can iterate sort of from within, but they usually get gobbled up. That the new thing comes on the, either at the outskirts, on the edge of inside, or totally outside. And that within there, we have examples of not only resistance to, um, to whiteness, but also a glimpse of a new way, a glimpse of liberation or the liberative way, um, a glimpse of freedom. So I don't know if this is connected into the United Church, but you have created something new. And, and I know you've created or you've been part of other... Um, new things that have um, run its cycle of life, but you have something now, and perhaps it's not yours, called Queer Sunday Project? Right. Yeah, I, I think just to speak to what you're saying more generally, I think the idea of, like, by us, for us is so important, you know? Like, if we mm -hmm. want um, to see change, it's so important to show, like, a shift away from paternalism to real trust, which is why, you know, I'm always looking at like grants and where money is going. And it's like, hand the money over. If you feel like you need to like, as a white institution, micromanage it, like then you're being complicit again in white supremacy. Um, so I think finding how to create those spaces where, you know, you feel like you've carved it out for yourself um, is so important. And so I'm grateful to have been part of a few of those. Um, more recently, I was approached by um, Jenna Tenyak, um, who was interested in what it would look like to create a space that um, is for two-spirit LGBTQ plus BIPOC, like Black, Indigenous, people of color, Christians, term used very loosely, um, to have a space to learn and be in community together. And so just this past month, we launched our first of a series of workshops that we're doing through Zoom on the third Thursday of the month. Um, we are on Instagram, Queer Sunday. Um, and yeah, I mean, if you're listening and you, if that's you and you wanna join, that would be great. Um, it is really beautiful to be able to make those spaces and the dream moving forward yeah. in this pandemic time would be hopefully one day <laughs> to be able to also have shared spaces in person um, to connect. 
when you think of dream of community and also for yourself as minister, as leader of that thing in the future, what does that look like? Do you ever kind of like, oh, this is what the, if we made it, this is the thing that it would look like. Do you have kind of a picture of what that is? Yeah, the uh, image that I am drawing a fair bit of inspiration from these days is um, mushrooms. Um, that's totally not the answer you were expecting. Um, no, no, you're, you're going to build this metaphor into another T-shirt. So, yeah, mushrooms. yeah. Well, so because I've been interested in the effect that like oftentimes we're like, wow, institutions are really problematic. We got to make our own institution. And I'm like, well, maybe the <laughs> yeah, issue yeah. is just trying to enshrine like roles and responsibilities and powers and structures um like that's part of it um and to sort of let go of this that concept and so for me it's not like i'm dreaming that one day i'll create my own super ngo or this kind of church in any way yeah, but yeah. to create space and means to for things to happen as they're meant to happen for them to be as beautiful as they're meant to be for as long as they are and to accept that they will sort of burst forth and then they will decompose and nourish what comes next. And um, mushrooms, like the mycelia, they, they grow in this way where it's like all underneath the surface and it's all connected to each other. And then just every once in a while, it will send a shoot up of, you know, what's ready to burst forth. And so for me, I think like the image of what could be, is that like vibrant, healthy um, root system. Mm. Um, and then just to celebrate the different ways in which that bursts forth. Um, yeah. And, you know, some of it might be very sustainable and last a long time. Some of yeah. it might be quite short-lived and to not sort of put pressure on things needing to, yeah, be institutionalized to be of value. So that for me is the dream is figuring out how we can all sort of be in relationship with each other that support those things happening <laughs>